Hello, and welcome to The Steps Podcast with me, Boone Christensen, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. And I promise that this episode is going to be way more educational than it is erotic. So, sorry to disappoint. But for educational purposes, I'm going to be very direct and blunt in this conversation about sex. I'll be reviewing four chapters from the book, which basically move up the brain in terms of what makes for a functional and fulfilling sexual experience. As we will find, it has much more to do with our individual beliefs, emotions, and culture around sex than any sort of technique you might Google. How to Have Sex, Part 1, The Basics Sex, besides money, the most most cited reason for divorce and couple stress generally. Everybody's doing it, or wanting to, but most people aren't talking about it, at least not in honest or vulnerable terms. This four-part series of posts will discuss things we need to know and do in order to make sex what it should be. A fun, energizing, bonding, pleasurable experience untainted by resentment, obligation, boredom, ignorance, shame, or unrealistic expectations. Sex should be enjoyable. If it isn't, maybe these posts can help. The first post will discuss some foundational physiological information. The second will discuss common emotional issues around sex. The third will discuss maladaptive beliefs that can interfere with sex. And the last will discuss how self-improvement and maturity will improve sex and every other aspect of your life. So first, the basics. Let's start with bodies. Humans are by nature sexual beings. Since the beginning, humans have used sex to reproduce. Because reproduction is essential, sex comes with some strong incentives, such as intense physical pleasure, the strongest pleasure possible without drugs, and intense emotional bonding. Whether these effects arose spontaneously or through divine intervention, they exist and are important. If God exists, then God made sex. I will define sex as any sort of physical intimacy involving arousal, but you can define sex however you darn well please. It's a unique experience for everyone. The most important sexual apparatus is the brain. The brain can create fantasies and sensations. It can visualize the process. It can block sensations. It can create orgasms with or without external stimulation. I would consider the first, and probably most difficult, step in creating a positive sexual experience is addressing impediments in the brain. Anxiety and depression are natural survival responses. If they are active, it makes it more difficult for the body to devote blood, neurons, and energy to making good sex. It's just our luck that having sex isn't as important as not dying, so sex gets short shrift when mental illness is present. Uh, You can check out the brain and the bucket post for an intro into uh, my general theory of treating mental illness. If you aren't having good sex, I would honestly prioritize psychological mechanisms before treating other components of sex, but more on this in the next posts. The other physical components to consider are sexual organs and erogenous parts. You might want to practice saying them out loud until you feel comfortable with them. Repeat after me. Vagina. Clitoris. Labia vulva, penis, testicles, scrotum, nipples, breasts, perineum, anus, tongue, lips, teeth. Wow, can you believe I said all those things on a podcast? Any other sensitive body part that feels good when touched a certain way, which could be shoulders or knees or that part behind your knees. Um, I think it's called the popliteal region. So, do you know where the relevant parts are on yourself and your partner? This may seem silly to ask, but I've known too many men who could not identify any female sexual anatomy beyond the vagina, and too many women who had never even looked at their own sexual parts. You really should know 
where your own parts are and what they look like. Do you know what feels good to you? Do you know what doesn't feel good? Explore, either alone or with your partner, what sensations actually feel good to you. What you feel is what you feel, and it's okay if some things are pleasurable to you that aren't pleasurable for others, and vice versa. Do you know what an orgasm is? Do you know what yours feels like? Do you know how to reach an orgasm? What is the orgasm ratio between you and your partner, and how do you feel about that? It's a common saying that if you're not sure if you've had an orgasm, you probably haven't had one. I think this is generally true. For those who don't know, the Google Dictionary definition is a climax of sexual excitement characterized by feelings of pleasure centered in the genitals and, in men, experienced as an accompaniment to ejaculation. FYI, many women also ejaculate during sex. I might add, the orgasm is a surge of electrical activity, usually stemming from the genitals and flowing upward, resulting in muscle contractions. But orgasms can actually be reached through other means. Some can just meditate, but stimulation of oral, nipple, anal, and other areas have been observed to generate orgasms. This graph roughly demonstrates the change in arousal around an orgasm. Um, so I've got an old a graph here uh, that is foundational in the studies of Masters and Johnson, um, to highly controversial researchers that learned a whole lot about the human sexual response and told us about it. Um, but what I've got in these diagrams, which I actually won't have uh, linked in the description, it just shows the male orgasm, which typically you know rises and peaks once and then comes to resolution, and then the female orgasm, which rises and then comes almost to a peak and sometimes continues without resolution or may enter orgasms and multiple orgasms can occur in women in a short period of time. Uh, whereas with men, they require a refractory period, uh, which can actually be trained to be shortened over time. Um, but I don't know a whole lot about that. You can go look that one up if you are very interested in that. You can build an arousal until you reach a point where the arousal experiences a sharp jump resulting in high bodily tension, then relaxing in a wave of endorphins. Women can have multiple orgasms in a short period of time. Men rarely are able to have more than two orgasms within the same hour, and many are unable to do even that. And how do you build arousal to the point of orgasm? At a physiological level, it will likely take some combination of stimulation of various parts of the body. I won't be discussing sexual methods here. You can find specific techniques anywhere or make up your own. There are no silver bullets for sexual greatness. You'll have to find what works for you but I will offer. Contrary to popular belief or what is seen in pornography, the vast majority of women cannot regularly orgasm during intercourse, and the small portion who can rarely do without other kinds of stimulation. Direct stimulation to the clitoris, manual, oral, or use of a vibrator, is often reported as the easiest way for women to reach orgasm. Emotional intimacy and effective communication is way more important in creating a satisfying sexual experience than physical features or techniques for both women and men. See part two to learn more about emotional components of sex, as we will in just a minute. Also, FYI, the following body conditions inhibit sexual function. Poor diet, poor exercise habits, poor sleep, chronic pain, autoimmune disorders, such as multiple sclerosis, arthritis, diabetes, etc., other chronic illnesses, being overweight or underweight. Though being, quote, overweight may contribute to lower energy, reduced blood circulation, and reduced hormone production, very few people have a body shape that prevents intercourse from happening, depending on the method. 
next, medications. Tons of medications have sexual side effects. Ask your doctor or just look them up. Last, pregnancy. But look out for that third trimester. The increased blood flow in the pelvic region can make for intensified sexual functioning in some women. Needless to say, imperfect sex and physiological sexual misfires are super common and normal. Don't freak out. Please talk about it. You are under no obligation to have perfect sex. Part two, emotions. A prerequisite to bonding and optimal pleasure in sex is safety, both physical and emotional. Obviously, physical abuse or coercion has no place in healthy sexual relationships. The same goes for for emotional coercion. Let me try that again. The same goes for emotional coercion. No one should ever be obligated to have sex. In a vulnerable, intimate sexual relationship, there are no such things as marital obligation or duty sex, quid pro quos, trading things for sex, pressuring someone to have sex if they don't feel like it, even if they said they would or they felt like it earlier, holding someone else responsible for your happiness, stress relief, or sexual release, sexual quotas, or number counts. All those things do not belong, I am saying. Because sex is not necessary for life or even good health, there are no urgent sexual situations. Sexual tension can even be relieved without sexual activities, such as exercise. The healthiest relationships are based on the assumption or faith that the other person is committed and loves you and will express love of their own free will. Coercing someone to express love defeats the definition of real love and creates resentment and anxiety. Other things that undermine the feeling of safety requisite for good sex are criticism. You don't want to have sex with someone who criticizes you, who feels the need to tell you what you are doing wrong without your consent. Next, invalidation. You don't want to have sex with someone who doesn't show that your feelings matter to them. This doesn't mean agreement. It just means both people care about the other's feelings. It is possible to disagree on an issue and still feel like someone respects your perception as valid. A common example of invalidation. Honey, I think we need couples therapy. No, we don't. You need therapy. Such an exchange will lead to poor or no sex. Next, emotional distance. If you don't feel like you are aware... Like you are aware of your partner's feelings, if it seems that there are off-limit topics or you don't feel connected, then sex can only bring physical pleasure at best, essentially couples masturbation, which is empty and fleeting without emotional intimacy. Unaddressed couple issues. If one or both of you is still hurting about the argument about the money or in-laws, kids, or especially division of labor in the home, then sex will likely be hindered. Suppressed emotions within the couple. Maybe someone made a comment that unwittingly hurt the other, and the hurt person hasn't sought a repair. This will lead to resentment, which hurts sex. Outside stressors. If someone is burdened by some current stressor in their life or some unresolved past trauma, it could hinder their body's ability to feel safe and relaxed in sex. Unresolved sexual traumas obviously tend to throw a huge wrench into the process. Body shame. Sex requires exposure of your softest, most vulnerable parts to someone else in the hopes that they will be tender and caring and not hurt you. If you have been given the message that your body parts are deficient in some way, from media, culture, your family, your partner, it will be difficult to share your parts with someone else without fear of judgment, even if your partner is the safest person in the world. Body shame is not resolved through body changes, such as weight loss or plastic surgery. 
but through serious reflection, thought-challenging, and trauma processing. Character shame. Being ashamed of your internal character parts is analogous to being ashamed of your physical parts. If you don't like yourself, are angry toward yourself, racked with guilt about something you've done, or afraid someone is going to see you for who you really are, um, I have parenthesized imposter syndrome, you will have great difficulty relaxing and being yourself with someone. This can be pronounced if you feel shame about some religious violation related to sex, as we'll cover in the next part. There are a lot of feelings that can get in the way of good sex, but all of them can be resolved. You might be thinking, but if people can't have good sex without resolving their feelings, we'll never have good sex. I would posit that you can't ever feel truly safe or happy without processing your feelings. This isn't just about sex. It's about every aspect of your life, and it's actually possible. Part 3. Beliefs and Misconceptions If you'll just give me a sec, I actually exited out of this chapter on the internet, which I did a little bit of editing for. There are many ideas about sex, either explicitly discussed or expressed implicitly, that can poison it. These ideas are maladaptive because they stem from, or easily induce, the emotions discussed in the previous post. I will list some of these false beliefs, then follow them up with a more adaptive rebuttal. 1. Sexual satisfaction, arousal, and orgasm are based on physical attractiveness. Not so. Firstly, there is no objective measure of physical attractiveness. And, as stated in the first two posts, emotional intimacy is a much stronger predictor of how much you enjoy sex, and your relationship in general. I mean, just look at the success rates of celebrity marriages. Next, I am responsible for my partner's enjoyment of sex. Not so. You are not responsible for your partner reaching orgasm, general arousal, or general satisfaction. You communicate and contribute as much as you reasonably can, then leave them the ultimate responsibility for how their experience goes. This principle applies more generally in that you are not responsible for others' feelings or actions. Uh, We'll actually discuss this more in the next post on differentiation. Next, people don't fake orgasms. Actually, that's probably not a newsflash for you guys that... People fake orgasms all the time, mostly because they want to get sex over with or because they don't or because they know they likely won't climax, but don't want to disappoint their partner. Hashtag feeling responsible. Men do this occasionally, but a vast majority of women have faked an orgasm and many fake it on a regular basis. Honesty about this will increase the chance of sex improving. Next, sex is dirty or sinful and makes you dirty or sinful. The 19th century Shaker cult believed that all sex was unholy. No surprise, they didn't perpetuate their species. As discussed in the first post, if there is a god, then that god intended for people to have sex. Depending on your moral or religious beliefs, sex under certain contexts may be a violation of certain rules. However, breaking rules, and perhaps reaping the natural consequences of those actions, never makes anyone less lovable or valuable as a soul. Or to god. In conservative religious communities, it can be incredibly difficult to parse out the difference between doing something you believe is, quote, wrong, inducing guilt, and that action defining you, which is shame. Then, it is incredibly difficult to change that feeling once said action, i.e. sex, suddenly becomes not wrong, as in the case of marriage. 
In these communities, it is best to teach about sex as religion teaches it in the most basic form, which tends to be that sex is awesome, miraculous, and sacred, and is most beneficial in a marital relationship. If you have sex outside of marriage, there may be natural harmful consequences, and it may impede you from making further commitments to God. But God will still love you as much as ever, and there will be ways to make reparations for any violations. If misconceptions about sex have induced shame, there are ways to treat that and be free of it. Um, I've got two chapters in the book called Principles of Forgiveness and How to Process Trauma. Next, some sexual methods are off limits. Next, some sexual methods are off limits. Branching off the last topic, there are a lot of people who think certain sexual acts are not allowed. Take a look at your moral code or religious creed. Where are you getting this message? Sexual acts should be collaborative and consensual between partners. If there is a higher power concerned with the particulars of your sexual experience, learn about where that is written. I would be surprised if your religion specifically dictated which methods are allowed and which are not. Next, sex isn't worth it unless it is amazing. One of the most influential articles I read in grad school was called The Good Enough Model of Sexual Satisfaction, an academic piece that obviously advocates for low-pressure sexual situations. Honestly, most sexual encounters are average, C or B-grade sex. And that's okay. Sex doesn't have to produce earth-shattering orgasms, or any orgasms for that matter. It doesn't need to involve vaginal lubrication or erections. There are no shoulds in sex. It's whatever works for you and your partner. Incidentally, when the pressure is low to perform, the chance of having an A-plus sexual experience increases. Next, sex is portrayed accurately in pornography. Wrong. I have never heard of a porn piece that describes the awkwardness, anxiety, confusion, false starts, quick cancels, sharp pain, cramps, or intermittent tangential conversation that exist in many sexual encounters. Porn portrays scenarios and techniques that are wholly unrealistic and even physically injurious if attempted. Porn should be seen as a don't-try-this-at-home sort of deal. Men are more sexual than women. This is a poisonous stereotype. Though sex drive ebbs and flows throughout our lifetime, there is not strong scientific evidence that men are just inherently more sex-driven. The discrepancy may come from the tendency of men to relieve their stress with sex, which may just come from poor emotional socialization, whereas women tend to find relief in emotional intimacy. But if two people manage their stress well and have safe, intimate communication, discrepancies in sex drive will be much less likely to cause problems, if they are even detectable. I am only sexual in relation to my partner, slash they own my sexuality. You were a sexual being before you met your partner. You own and are responsible for your sexuality and reserve the right to do with it what you will, and no one should shame you, guilt you, or coerce you to do or not do something against your own wishes. All arousal must lead to intercourse. Piggybacking off that last concept, you have the right to full autonomy over your own sexuality. This means that if you just want a back rub or a makeout or to cuddle naked but not have intercourse, you have the right to do just that without pressure to do otherwise. Last, I can't talk with anyone outside my relationship about sex. It takes a village to raise a child. The same principle applies to the couple relationship. Many believe that because sex is sacred or taboo, it shouldn't be discussed with anyone besides their spouse or partner. 
I understand the belief, but application must serve the purpose of keeping sex sacred. Sex that involves secrets, suppressed emotions, shame, and coercion is not healthy and not sacred. Discussing sex or other couple issues honestly and vulnerably with a trusted friend, family member, or professional can serve to improve education and intimacy while reducing shame and secrecy, increasing the value of the sexual relationship. Just make sure that whoever you talk to can validate your feelings without judging you or your partner, as well as withholding traumatic reactions. For example, talking about issues with a friend that is still, who is still seething from a rough divorce. All right, and now for the last part, which is called differentiation. We've made our way up through the brain from basic bodily functions to survival mechanisms, to cognitive processes and beliefs, and now explore the most complex part of the sexual experience, differentiation. Murray Bowen, David Schnarch, and other renowned psychological theorists use this term as the most important indicator of one's mental and relational health. It's a slippery term, with each theorist putting their own spin on it, but I'll try and sum it up with this. Differentiation, the degree to which your feelings, beliefs, and actions are separate and independent from those of the people and influences around you. It implies a strong awareness and consideration of those around you, with primary motivation being growth rather than fear. A highly differentiated person lives deliberately. They know what they are doing and why they are doing it. If they are doing what they don't want to be doing, they make a plan to change it and follow through. They recognize where their feelings come from and act on them mindfully. They react to their environment adaptively. They don't react aggressively to insults and criticism because they don't take it personally. They know who they are. They seek accomplishments for the sake of personal progress, not the validation and approval of others. They accept failures and imperfections graciously. They know and feel they are valuable even when they're not perfect. They have no need to blame others or adopt a victim mentality. They take responsibility for themselves and accept the consequences of their own actions. So what does this look like in a sexual encounter? A highly differentiated person will have internalized the following. My body concept is differentiated. My body shape is how it is and that's okay. I can make changes if I want to, not because I need to. My worth is not defined by the shape of my body, my athletic ability, my physiological functioning, or sexual potency. Culture, social media, my mom, or my partner do not define what is good enough concerning my body. Or, you know, I get to decide what influences affect me. My role in my sexual relationship is differentiated. As with my body, I get to decide what influences I ascribe to in what I deem effective, appropriate, and correct regarding my sexual relationship, and no one has the right to shame or judge me for my decisions. The same goes for every other aspect of life you can think of, work roles, religious interpretations, social roles, family roles, etc. Maybe these examples will help you know what this looks like in action. So, we're looking at a conversation between partner one and partner two. Partner one, I could really go for some tonight. Partner two. I'm sorry, love. I've had a pretty awful day and I don't think I could get into it. Partner one. Are you kidding me? You say that all the time. I swear you don't even care about me. Partner two. These past few weeks have been really hard on me and I haven't been sexually available. I care about you so much and it hurts that I can't be physically affectionate right now. Bullcrap. I'm done with this neglect. What am I supposed to do? If you don't care about me, maybe I'll just have to figure something else out. I really am sorry. Whoa. Was that a low-key threat by partner one to use porn or cheat or something? Partner two is differentiated in that their emotions are separate enough from their partners to assert a decision without being reactive. 
quote, I don't feel well, so I'm not going to have sex, and that's okay. Partner two probably recognizes that partner one is feeling triggered, perhaps from childhood abandonment issues maybe, and is thus making non-logical statements. Even if partner one was sincere in their comments, partner two's self-worth is resilient enough to withstand emotional threats. Partner two is actually strengthening the relationship with this kind of response. Mindfully asserting needs rather than fighting or just giving in to emotional demands increases partner one's chances of exploring their underlying issues, which leads to less anxious sexual bids, which will lead to better sex. Here's one more example. Partner one. Dearest, I've got to be honest. I don't think I can come tonight. Partner two. You know, I don't think I can either. Partner one. But didn't you just... I faked it! Partner two starts crying. Partner one. I'm so glad you told me. Really? Because I actually fake it a lot. Do you hate me? Of course not. I'm so sorry you felt like you needed to put up a front. I'm just so afraid you would think less of me or that I didn't love you or that you weren't a good lover if I couldn't climax. I'm not offended at all. Let's talk about why you feel that way. Partner one is our differentiated model. Their self-worth is not threatened by the inability to orgasm or by partner two's revelation about faking. Partner one doesn't take it personally. Partner one is vulnerable to invalidation with the revelation of not being able to come, but felt able to be vulnerable because their self-worth was resilient to potential attacks. Because there is minimal personal distress, partner one is able to effectively help partner two process their feelings and will increase partner two's differentiation. Such an acknowledgement of sex, how it currently is, decreases the anxiety of future encounters. So that's a lot of info about an abstract concept, and maybe the idea of being highly differentiated seems unrealistic. Don't worry, you don't need to grasp the idea and its whole complexity to start working on it. And it's something that you can always improve, like your physical health. You'll never meet a perfectly differentiated person. Wherever you are at is okay. Footnote. It should be noted that people with roughly the same amount of differentiation end up together. If one partner increases in differentiation, chances of separation increase, as opposed to two people with low differentiation who fight all the time but can't bear to separate. This is the great risk of committed relationships, that you must progress together or you will likely be dissatisfied. For more about differentiation, you can look at books by David Schnarch or by podcasts and courses by Dr. Jennifer finlayson Fife. All right. Thanks so much for listening to these four parts on how to have sex. Uh, this segment was educational and it describes you know, diagnosis Um, It describes the problems. What it doesn't do is teach you how to treat it. It doesn't give you any behavioral methods. It doesn't teach you how to change your beliefs. It doesn't teach you how to process your emotions or increase your differentiation. All that is going to come in some future episodes. So stay tuned. Thanks.